Got any jokes, Corey? Are there any? Are, do, are there any like populist political humor? God, I'm trying to, there was, as you said, that there was one that I was reading once that like that pair. They were talking. It was an agricultural movement, and they were like somebody just came up with the fact that they were having marital issues, and they decided on parity as being the the issue. P a r i t y as being the solution needed. And one of them goes, why? I'm telling this terribly. And he said, well, parody is the, apparently the solution to all the other farmers' problems. So I figured it'd fix my marriage, too, or something like that. Just, I, I don't even understand what 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 the joke was here. Because, like, because anyway, sorry, you use the word parody. And, uh, you know, in my mind as a physicist, it uh, brings to mind, like, uh, the, the notion of, you know, flipping signs on things. It's like, I guess that's the kind of solution to all the physics problems, too. Sure, why not? I do like the implication that everyone in Iowa is so familiar with like U.S. farm policy and regulations that this would be funny to them. A hundred percent. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it really like, and, and it's fair because in the '80s, cost of production was something they talked about all the time. Um, you know, at what percentage of cost of production should farmers be being subsidized, or what should um, what should the price supports be that are you know provided for for American agriculture? And um, there was the more kind of rap- movements or the the more left-wing farm movements like the um the national farmer organization and some of those that were really active in the 60s they were screaming parody as as much as they could and as often as they could and had it was something that kind of wearied some of the policymakers, but at the same time was still a um an effective tool or an effective vision we're visited by an illustrious guest here today on the same but worse and uh it's our friend Dr. Corey Halla, visiting professor of American history at the University of Houston. And Corey studies uh, left-wing populism in the Midwest in the second half of the 20th century and is a big expert on that area uh, and that style of politics. And we're here, uh, we're here to talk about uh, you know, what that history says about what we're going through now and whether it can say anything about uh, the political context that we now face. So Corey, I hope I got all that right. As long as someone pronounces my name right these days, that's uh, I'll take that. Yeah. Okay. So Corey, let's uh, let's set the scene here with a little bit of uh, history of Midwestern politics and Midwestern farming, uh, and also let's let's also talk about like the uh, you know we're, we're, let's let's set the geography too because obviously uh, as you know the term Midwest is a subject of fierce contestation and so when we're talking about the Midwest where, where are we talking about primarily right now the definition of the Midwest that you know you'll use or that you'll academics will argue about for hours at a conference can range anything from what the U.S. Census definition is um, you know including Missouri Kansas all the way out uh, east to Ohio all the way west to the Dakotas and Nebraska. For my intents and purposes, the uh, the Midwest that I use, I, I really take care to define as the upper Midwest specifically. So a five state region um, that includes Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, and both North and South Dakota. Um, I do that both for political reasons. Um, also because, especially at the dissertation process back when, uh, it was already a lot of travel to, to, you know, visit the, the archives and corners of North Dakota and of, you know, Northeastern Wisconsin and Southeastern South Dakota and wherever else. But um, it really is a definitional purpose. And it's one that gets to the heart of kind of Midwestern political history that all five of those states um, 
in the 19, well, from the 1890s through the 1930s, um, had periods of substantial governance where they were led by uh, members of a, a third party. So in, uh, in the 1890s, that'd be the Populist Party uh, that, we've, that we've talked about, both Ignatius Donnelly, the proud Minnesotan, uh, who writes the Omaha Platform in 1892. And also, you know, Ragnarok, the Age of the Gods or whatever, Atlantis, the Antediluvian Continent. I'm getting these subtitles wrong, but uh, a substantial book contesting the authorship of Shakespearean uh, uh, plays and uh, just generally like one of these beautiful crackpots of the 20th century or the yeah early 20th century uh, Midwest. <laughs> Part of this whole point was going to be, I was going to make the case strongly that these populists were not, in fact, crackpots, particularly in the 1980s, but <laughs> having having those legs kicked out under, from under me so early. Um, but, but generally speaking, the idea that it, across all of those states, so in South Dakota, um, it's the populist party uh, with, uh, with Governor Andrew Lee and a senator, uh, James Kyle, who are both elected in the 1890s, uh, James Weaver, the presidential candidate in 1892, coming from Iowa. And then moving farther into the into the 1910s and 20s and realizing that we want to be careful here about terms, uh, moving into more of a kind of progressive era governance, not only the Robert LaFollette progressive republicanism of the state of Wisconsin, LaFollette, you know, serving as governor, senator, uh, eventually running uh, his 1924 campaign for the presidency, um, but his sons then as well, uh, Robert Jr. and Phil LaFollette, uh, becoming senator and governor, respectively, from Wisconsin as members of the third party, Wisconsin Progressive Party. Uh, in Minnesota as well, the uh, Farmer Labor Party is one that I know Andrew and I are, are familiar with. Uh, Minnesota, you know, notably still has the Democratic Farmer Labor Party. That's what the Democratic Party is called in Minnesota. And I should say, Corey and I both proud sons of the soil of the great state of Minnesota. I don't know about you, Corey, but my uh, my ancestors are mostly... Uh, Scandinavian people who came here in the early part of the 1910s who made up that uh, that core of sort of uh, the backbone of of what I would characterize as a very distinctive Minnesota Minnesota style politics. Absolutely, I draw more from the the Catholic kind of settlement, so Germans and Czechs uh, as well as Irish and Polish. But um, absolutely, and and it's kind of a mix of those forms of both good government and kind of some of the machine politics that, uh, which it sounds contradictory, but both some of those ideas of reform and active government um, that, that Scandinavians and Germans bring with those forms of social democracy that blend to create the DFL when they meet the kind of machine politics that we associate with a city like St. Paul. Um, but that Farmer Labor Party in Minnesota to kind of bring the last one full circle is actually owes its uh, ideological heritage to uh, what was at one point, and some still claim is the most socialist state in the union, uh, North Dakota, with the nonpartisan league uh, really kind of bursting onto the scene there in 1916, uh, when they elect a farmer, Lynn Frazier, who's got no political experience uh, to be governor with something over three quarters, I, uh, I believe, of the vote. And that nonpartisan league had drawn on, A.C. Townley was an old socialist who traveled hundreds of thousands of miles around the state in his Model T as the story goes, registering pissed off farmers to vote um, for the nonpartisan league. And, and the idea back then was that it was the fat cats down in Minneapolis, the grain dealers down in Minneapolis were setting the rates so high, uh, the farmer in, in North Dakota couldn't get a fair shake. And I, we should also, I think, well, just as a uh, another fun fact is that the, the North Dakota Democratic Party is still called the Democratic Party Nonpartisan League. 
So Minnesota and North Dakota have that shared heritage of actually are uh, the Democratic parties in these two states are have a different name than the Democratic Party everywhere else. I wanted to uh, to also interject. I think uh, maybe you could speak on this a little bit more authoritatively, but the Democratic Party and the Republican Party in the upper Midwest specifically is politically distinct in the sense that the Republican Party uh, as so in national political elections, at least, was the dominant political party in these states from the end of the Civil War, basically, until uh, the mid 20th century. And then they've sort of they've diverged in significant ways since then. One of the reasons for that, at least, you know, my understanding of it is that the the Republican Party of the uh, post-Civil War era was essentially a a division between um, Midwest and Western, more populist iterations of that party. And, you know, East Coast finance capital, which was also uh, covered in the Republican Party, which is, you know, this is sort of an interesting marriage between like the two sort of legacies of the Civil War, one of which being in in significant parts of the country, uh, the Republican Party was like the party of farmers and populists and people who wanted bank reform and stuff like that. And then on the on the coast, the party there was more an heir to the sort of central centralized uh, nationalizing, um, industrializing policy that was sort of the other half of a, a process uh, within the Republican Party that essentially started during the Civil War but continued afterwards. So uh, maybe you could just speak on the significance of the sort of distinct flavors of the Republican and Democratic parties in the upper Midwest in the early 20th century and and how that might not necessarily align with what we think about those parties either in that era or, you know, especially now. There's a lot to, a lot to cover there in that kind of in that ground. But I think when you talked about the division between uh, or kind of the break between capital and farming, we talk about the Midwest as kind of the successful model of the Republican blueprint, right? That 160 acre homestead act, um, that kind of granting of land, although it also is paralleled by the Pacific Railroad Act. And we see the kind of the rise of these both these monopolies or these large industries that in turn prompt you know, the little guy who thinks that he's out there because he's this, you know, this uh, model of the successful kind of yeoman farmer of this Jeffersonian tradition, um, as he, as you know, that, that individual feels increasingly isolated uh, over time. That's where you do see some of those breaks with the, with kind of the national Republican party, um, bearing in mind that, you know, LaFollette is a Republican and until he kind of breaks and runs in 24, he's a progressive Republican. Um, the uh, governor, I believe it was Governor Kyle, or perhaps, no, it was sorry, it was the Senator Kyle from uh, from South Dakota was a Democrat, turned populist, later turned Republican, uh, and others, Heinrich Shipstead of Minnesota as well, followed kind of those um, those trajectories where party was a very kind of fluid process for uh, for a lot of this, and it it also skirts around some of these issues of foreign policy that you know some of the great isolationists, if we want to phrase it that way. Uh, you know, do draw from kind of the Midwestern region as well. But you're right that there are these kind of regionally distinct traditions, but as they don't map to national policies, we see then the kind of breakaways from both the Democratic and Republican parties that swell the ranks of things like the Nonpartisan League, sure, um, but the Wisconsin Progressive Party as well, the uh, the Farmer Labor and then the DFL. And that leads to a a kind of ongoing realignment that that's really bubbling throughout the 1970s and into the 80s, when you have as governor of Minnesota a Catholic Croat son of a miner turned dentist who is strongly anti-abortion, who is strongly uh, you know 
or is rather not on board with gay rights in general. Somebody like a Rudy Perpich I'm referring to, who kind of defies those two-party kind of lines, is definitely this kind of uh, independent streak that does run throughout the Midwest and really makes it politically politically distinct or unique. Another thing I guess I want to talk about, and I gr- growing up in Minnesota, there are some sort of politically distinct things about Minnesota that you know stretch all the way back to you know the good, strong Scandinavian and German stock and their and their uh, sort of ideas about about government and stuff like that. But like, for instance, Minnesota typically has one of the highest voter participation rates in the country, if not the highest. You know, my sense is that unlike states, let's say like New York or Chicago, even some smaller states. Uh, does not really have a history of distrusting its political system in, in a way, you know, in a way that's like, oh, they're every, everyone's a criminal. They're all uh, on the take and that kind of stuff. You know, Minnesota does have a, a, sort of a parallel history of, you know, like St. Paul was essentially like a mafia city uh, in the early 20th century. Uh, literally, like it was a home base. It was like the place where like if you were a, a gangster, you could go there and live there and they wouldn't, you know, the police were they had some kind of detente or something and they wouldn't, they like wouldn't arrest you. You could in fact, like, you know, go across the bridge, rob a bank in Minneapolis, run back to St. Paul. And then, <laughs> and then, you know, nothing would happen. Is that something that's politically distinct about the entire upper Midwest that, you know, it has this sort of, like you've been saying, like this tradition of like good governance and maybe a little bit more faith in the, the public process. And, uh, you know, that's something that seems to me is still fairly alive and well in Minnesota, which is, is, I guess also distinct in that it's it remains the most democratic of these states and, and it has significant sort of rural democratic constituencies that have evaporated, uh, you know, th- that are still evaporating, but but that have evaporated in, in pretty much everywhere else in the country. What is that tendency in upper Midwest politics? And you know, am I just off base here? Some am I just displaying my Minnesota chauvinism? I do like to you know display some Minnesota chauvinism at times too. So I appreciate. I, I think that's kind of well taken and something that I, I definitely layer on extra thick when I when I give talks in Iowa or, or Wisconsin, <laughs> what have you. I think, and it's perhaps a distinction that helps us get into the 1980s as well, um, but there's an idea that we do things right here, it's that they do things wrong out there, uh, that there is somebody else who's at fault. Um, it was uh, something that Marshall had raised as well, talking about uh, the idea of prices in Minneapolis, uh, talking about the rail rates that they were charged to ship goods down there, um, rather than the prices they got for their, their wheat was, were too high. That wasn't the case. It's never, it's never high enough but it's that the the railroad rates that they were being charged. And that's part of that original populist uh, kind of push, the setting of interstate commerce commissions and railroad regulating boards uh, within the states. But it's this idea that we can do things well here. It's that they in Washington are the ones who have the problems. Um, it's, it's part, you know, due to that kind of the tradition of those who settle in the Midwest. We talk that Scandinavian, German, you know, traditions of good government that they believe in. Uh, It's also due to the fact that that some of these both cities and uh, states took seriously some of those calls for progressive reforms. Minneapolis is one of the cities shamed by Lincoln Steffens in Shame of the Cities. Milwaukee elects elects Emil Seidel in 1910 in part as a response to the idea we need to clean up our police and fire commissions. Um, there are these kind of good government things that get established within these cities, but that also then are able to build or to kind of network with some of these rural concerns and constituencies like you've talked about to recognize uh, and build a, a movement that's not just urban, is not just rural, but rather is something that can transcend 
um, those kinds of divisions. And it's that kind of a language that in my own research and in some of the work that I've done is finding how in the 1970s and really in the 80s, both kind of community organizers, activists, and elected officials found ways to pull those ideas into the present. And to say that, hey, here are these, you know, here are these problems, either in a government that's unresponsive to you and the prices that you're getting for your goods or the prices that you're being charged and the interest rates that you're receiving or just the priorities of the federal government are so far out of tune or out of step with what's happening in your lives that we need to find ways to organize and to act, uh, to collect and then to magnify that power both at the state level, but, but outwards to the federal government as well. Well, and I was just going to say, you know, something that struck me as you were talking there is that, you know, uh, these states have politically diverged in significant ways in the sense that, you know, Wisconsin and the Dakotas are strongly Republican. Minnesota is, you know, one of the more consistently Democratic states. I don't think that, I mean, Minnesota, I believe, has the longest streak of voting for Democrats for president, um, mainly due to the fact that, you know, Walter Mondale was <laughs> was from Minnesota. So when he won only one state in the District of Columbia, you, you know which state he won. Uh, and then um, Wisconsin is is one of the sort of the quintessential purple states, I think. Uh, and, and also Wisconsin, I think Wisconsin has an incredibly strong city versus town uh, dynamic to its politics that I think is pretty unique. I mean, Minnesota may be going in that direction, but I think Wisconsin is sort of like hyper normalized Minnesota with its politics. I mean, for instance, like the Wisconsin Supreme Court is like has physically come to blows over partisan divides. The Minnesota Supreme Court is not nearly that political, even though obviously its actors are all ideological. But what I was going to say is that like, I think that this history of like good governance cashes out in interesting ways that sort of cut against the grain of what we think about our current politics. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was South Dakota that had possibly the nation's most effective COVID vaccination program last year. A lot of these states also throughout the, as they turned into Republican states, have maintained a, a sort of distinct flavor of Republican GOP politics that I that maybe is not shared by you know Kansas, Nebraska, Indiana, uh, Texas, Montana, various other you know uh, strongly Republican states. So I you know my my question for you basically is like, can you think of any interesting ways that like this sort of tradition has is is relevant to our current uh, politics, even in this sort of you know, hyper-polarized sort of there's two camps and there's not a lot of distinction between them in sort of the popular imaginary. Well, it was it was relevant particularly in the uh, in kind of the congressional maps uh, up until it's it's looking more and more like up until 2022 now that Ron Kind is retiring in Western, uh, in his kind of West Southwestern Wisconsin district and until 2020 and the fact that Colin Peterson represented, uh, you know, the most rural district, uh, you know, in one of, the, one of the most rural districts in in the country and one of the most uh, one of the most kind of red districts that was still voting a, a Democratic congressman uh, to Washington. Um, you know, those traditions remain or they matter in part because there is a language that has continued to elect blue representatives or Democratic representatives from these rural areas. There are still people being, and not just centered on, hey, there's a university town in Morris or, you know, in Grinnell or whatever, where, um, where you we can count on them electing some sort of a some sort of a Democrat, there there is a language of this kind of uh, this kind of small farmer, small producer, 
that that does resonate with rural voters, and it's one that, in kind of the modern context, democratic politicians have worked to do to make up ground that's been lost over the last uh, last 25, 30 years. Um, but there is a historic language that's out there that ought to serve uh, for those interested as a roadmap to how to go into some of these communities and and not just be kind of somebody who parachutes in because there's a nationally important election happening, but somebody who is deeply interested and invested um, in the you know in the future of that of that community, and that's something that in the, in the 1980s really we see linkages that are being built and saying okay you know when the farm crisis. Sorry, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut you off. We'll get to the 1980s in a second. I, I do have one quick follow-up to that, which is, do you think there are any uh, legacies of, of good governance and populism in the, in the uh, upper Midwestern Republican parties that would distinguish the, uh, an Iowa Republican, maybe not every Iowa Republican, but, you know, in, in 2020 from, uh, you know, sort of the caricature of, uh, you know, the extreme right-wing rhetoric of the uh, Republican Party as a whole, or the Dakotas, or, you know, Wisconsin, or, you know, rural Minnesota, or any of those places? Sure. So uh, one of the less good government and more kind of the issues on which they're focused. I should mention that the Minnesota Republican Party does rename itself in the 1970s in a conscious reaction to Watergate. Uh, they were known until 1995, I believe, as the Independent Republican Party. Um, so not the, not the, the it wasn't the Democrats and the Republicans, it was the DFL and the IR in Minnesota. Um, and there were a number of kind of good government or these uh, kinds of innovative, at least, uh, governors who are associated with that kind of a tradition. Uh, in Iowa, Bob Ray uh, in the 1970s is kind of the, the example of this relatively moderate, what we talk about today is kind of an East Coast Republican governor. Um, uh, Bob Ray is somebody who's deeply invested in both refugee resettlement in, uh, in women's rights as well, uh, was engaged. Uh, you look at somebody in Wisconsin uh, on par as uh, Tommy Thompson from 1986 through through the early 2000s, uh, somebody who was kind of engaged in that idea of talking about good government and restoring this trust uh, between government and the community. And Arnie Carlson in Minnesota is one who defied and kind of complicated those um, those political boundaries. Uh, good government is one where I'm not I'm not necessarily sure. Not saying they're bad, you know, necessarily bad leaders, any of them, but focus less, certainly less on kind of the political scandal or the. Uh, the most part, Thompson being an exception here, focused less on kind of the race baiting or some of the um, some of the appeals that we associate with right wing populism today. Midwestern Republicans had historically at least been associated more with that, as you put it, good government. But I think more so as kind of a an adaptive and responsive uh, way of of dealing with the concerns of their constituents. Sorry, could I could I press you on the on the the question about the republic the Republican Party of the Upper Midwest in the 2020s, and uh, just to see if 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 there's anything that like now, you know, I know this is not history per se, but more current events. But can you can you see any sort of traces of that distinct political tradition today, or have we essentially become too homogenized? You know, a homogenized two party system, and these distinctions don't really matter as much anymore. They matter increasingly less. I think one of the figures you can point to in part because he is, for me, a historical figure, but for those living in Iowa is an everyday reality still, um, is Chuck Grassley. You know, and when you ask about 2020, this is where I have to note, as I do with my students, that I am a, a public employee in the state of Texas and, and not tenured. And so, you know, my words need to be, you know, measured and, and thought out, uh, which they rarely are. So this is, a, but Chuck Grassley is one who 
brings in some of what historians like Michael Kazin and others called the, the style of populism, right? That it's called the full Grassley for a reason. You go to all 99 counties in, in Iowa and you've done the full Grassley. Then Grassley's one who was willing to break with the party, particularly on agricultural issues, stuff that when he knew it was hitting Iowans in the pocketbook, um, he, he remains, uh, for the most part, I think, remains decent at, at pivoting or at kind of shifting the message in such a way that, that he's able to make the case that he remains a friend of the family farmer and remains responsive and, you know, wants government to intervene in agriculture. But that is something that I think is a dying breed, particularly as politics in the last 30 years have become more nationalized. And, and once we get into the history, we'll talk more, more I know about how that kind of process shook out because uh, it did have the effect of fragmenting or, or um, putting the Midwestern political tradition uh, on that kind of back foot. Let's, let's talk about this uh, period of, of our intense interest here, which is this, you know, the shift, the 70s through today, really. I mean, but, you know, the 70s, at least through the Bill Clinton years, you know, it seems to me at least that there was an extraordinary change in the style of Midwestern politics, the, um, the responsiveness of politicians to uh, constituent issues. And I guess maybe we should, we should just say a little bit without dwelling on it that you know, that there was, there was a New Deal realignment that affected all of these states that were strongly Republican states after the Civil War. And as the energy of progressivism and populism moved away from the Republican Party, and it increasingly became a party of, you know, East Coast finance capital uh, before the, the Southern realignment, even the election of 1896 is a good example of this when William Jennings Bryan, Plains populist, was the Democratic nominee for president in the midst of you know, sort of the classic graft of late 19th century, you know, finance Republican politics, basically. And obviously there were still progressive or populist Republicans as well. But but by the mid 20th century, uh, you know, sort of feeding into this uh, period of the 1970s, we're starting to see that there is a break between that has mostly worked its way through the system of states that had previous that had had this sort of populist Republican character were mostly Democratic states now is and maybe uh, I don't know, like the history of, you know, where um, the Dakotas and Iowa and, and even Wisconsin were in terms of like who they were voting for for president in the 50s or whatever. But could you locate maybe when that switchover happened? And then and then we can start talking about a second switchover that happened that, you know, has affected the Dakotas and, and Wisconsin to some degree and, and Minnesota to a lesser degree. So the switch, particularly in Iowa and in the in both North and South Dakota, uh, it comes in late 60s or in, in, into the 70s. Uh, South Dakota is governed by Dick Knipe in, uh, from 70 to 78. Harold Hughes, uh, famously who takes Iowa off the liquor by the drink, uh, modernizes Iowa's liquor laws, though he's a recovering alcoholic himself. Each one of these states has kind of these these Democrats to rebuild the party in such, you know, in the from anywhere from the 50s in Wisconsin and, and the late 50s in Minnesota into the mid to late 60s in, in Iowa and North and South Dakota to make them state kind of competitive at the statewide levels. Uh, in uh, Minnesota, Hubert H. Humphrey is the one who leads that kind of merger between the, the Democratic and the Farmer Labor Party. Uh, in Wisconsin, it's uh, guys like John Reynolds uh, and uh, John Reynolds, Pat Lucy, Gaylord Nelson, who are folks who lead kind of this progressive tradition in the party and embed it into the kind of modern era to the point that by the by the mid 70s these are politically purple states uh, in everything except presidential elections uh, in the dakotas 
Senate seats are are won increasingly after the uh, after Watergate in Iowa in seventy two and seventy four. Democrats first termers take both those seats. North Dakota has been electing the same guy, Quentin Burdick, a DNPLer since the nineteen sixties. Uh, South Dakota has George McGovern still occupying his Senate seat. Sorry, can I can I ask you to clarify th- that we're talking in the sort of directly post New Deal New Deal era, these states are in the opposition to the New Deal. And the transition that you're talking about basically makes them Democrats, or at least purple, as you characterized it, leaving behind uh, like Midwestern conservative Republican opposition to Roosevelt's policies. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a that's a fair way of framing it, Marshall. And that really, as we move into the 60s, we see some of the some of the folks who had had supported the, the New Deal for one, and who had supported or drawn from the Traditions of uh, Floyd Olson and Elmer Benson in Minnesota, for example, the Lafollets in Wisconsin, uh, who are able then to kind of rethink and get out the vote in new ways by rebuilding party structures. And this really is something that happens from the ground up uh, because they have been kind of clipped in the 50s by some of this kind of moderate uh, Eisenhower Republicanism, but also some of the McCarthy red baiting that happens when uh, when Robert Lafollette Jr. loses his seat in 1946. It's not in the general, it's in the primary to uh, to tailgunner Joe McCarthy himself. And so these are, you know, kind of reformulating then and accepting in many ways Cold War liberalism, uh, accepting kind of that Americans for Democratic Action uh, kind of uh, kind of platform, something that Humphrey and Mondale in Minnesota are both on board with as a way of vehicle into this very competitive, turning these into two-party states out of that New Deal order after they're red baited to, sorry, to get back to your question, Marshall, after they're kind of red baited out of politics in a decent way in the late forties, that is a way that they kind of find themselves back in power is both by, by pairing that kind of cold war liberalism with the, with a more effective on the ground, get out the vote kind of strategy. So let's jump into the, the, the start of what we could call left-wing populism, post new, post new deal left-wing populism, in the upper Midwest. And maybe a good way of going about this is if you can pick out like sort of an exemplary sort of origin story in one of these states. And uh, we can just kind of, hopefully we can we can say that it'll stand in for sort of the way that the movement rose up uh, and this sort of, not necessarily movement, but the sort of set of tactics and uh, like style of politics. So it, it really, it's macroeconomic change in the region that, that leads to a great deal of this. And it's kind of the twin... I say twin problems of, of deindustrialization that affects particularly eastern halves of states, Minnesota and its Iron Range, uh, and southeastern Wisconsin with its with auto manufacturing uh, pretty heavily, or just manufacturing pretty heavily there, uh, and with what we refer to as the farm crisis of the 1980s. Deindustrialization, one that that leads to mines, uh, both mines and plants being shuttered on on the range. Uh, leads to places like the Chrysler plant in Kenosha, Wisconsin in the 1980s closing, uh, at the same time as family farms in the Midwest really do begin to collapse. Uh, Their farmers are encouraged throughout the 1970s, uh, kind of famously by Earl Butts, uh, Secretary of Agriculture, to plant fence row to fence row and to get bigger, get out. And a number of these farmers take that to heart and are you know, in the mid 70s, really 73, kind of the end of America's golden age of capitalism, are making record uh, record highs in terms of real farm income. By 1980, uh, we've got that real farm income, I, if I'm remembering right, is somewhere around $23 million. Uh, and by 1983, that's somewhere around $8 million. 
uh, prices for farmland begin to drop, the value of land uh, begins to drop, the price of uh, agricultural commodities themselves are, are dropping 50% uh, in a year. And you have farmers suddenly who are underwater. Uh, the average mean farm income in, in Iowa in 1983, I believe, is negative. Uh, the, it's farmers losing losing their livelihoods, losing their you know land that's been in their family for, in some cases, over 100 years already in the 1980s. And it is this really deep kind of both economic and psychic strain that that it uh, that it takes on the region, and so that kind of creates this condition by which people are are pissed off and they're looking for somebody to blame. Uh, now, in 1978 and 1980, when we talked about these kind of realigning elections, uh, we see that realignment toward Reagan in 78 and 80 sweeping into office in the Midwest Republican candidates uh, in 78 particularly prone to concerns over inflation, concerns over taxes. Uh, if you think about the Prop 13 movement out in California, it has its own kind of uh, iterations in the Midwest. Uh, but one of the moments that really detaches a number of uh, Midwestern states from kind of democratic policy is Jimmy Carter's decision to embargo grain to the Soviet Union in the wake of their invasion of Afghanistan in December of 1979. Uh, it's catastrophic in 80. Uh, it's catastrophic at, at Carter's level. Uh, Kennedy, at Ted Kennedy, when he runs in the primary, receives some of his strongest support in the Midwest. Uh, Pat Lucy, the former Democratic governor of Wisconsin, is John Anderson's vice president in 1980. Uh, and Midwestern incumbents across the region lose. In 1980 alone, the governor of North Dakota, uh, George McGovern, Senator in Iowa, John Culver, Senator, uh, I'm sorry, George McGovern, Senator in South Dakota, uh, John Culver, Senator in Iowa, and Gaylord Nelson, Senator in Wisconsin, all specifically targeted uh, by the National Conservative Political Action Committee for defeat, and all of them go down, uh, go down in flames that year. To bring it back to Minnesota, we had had our own Minnesota massacre in 1978, when the state loses both its Senate seats and the governorship of uh, or DFL uh, incumbents lose in all three of those races in one year. Um, and so this kind of throws the electoral landscape into, into turmoil. Uh, you have voters who are upset and are casting protest votes in many ways, uh, but then seeing over the course of the 1980s, the, condition, uh, the conditions for family farmers worsen. Uh, and they're looking for some sort of alternative or some sort of out. And this is really where you see those kinds of populist uh, both messages, but populist policy solutions uh, really begin to kind of come back into vogue in the region as a way of restoring the people's control over the government. I, I got to say, I was really interested, and to preface this, I should say that I don't know this history at all, that this is definitely not uh, any part of my uh, awareness. Uh, just the words farm crisis are like something that was not really on my radar. Uh, but the... Um, I found it very interesting that there's this like weird, maybe not so weird, but that there's just coincidence between foreign policy, right? Like blocking exports to the Soviet Union. And at the same time, this domestic, uh, this it has these domestic ramifications where you think, oh, like if you think about kind of the traditional divisions of, uh, let's say foreign policy, tend to think of Republicans as being fairly hawkish on on the Soviets. But yet here you have this like situation where, well, you can say things, right? You can talk about how bad the Soviet Union is, but now you're actually doing something and that something is like 
now costing me, you know, my livelihood, right? Uh, and yet, yeah, it's 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 very strange. I I, I guess I guess I'm curious to hear sort of how that uh, how that played out if we have time for it because it really is this kind of situation where you think you know, if you're a Republican, you think, okay, like probably we should be like in opposition to the Soviet Union or whatever. But then on the ground, that doesn't, it seems like that's not really the case, or at least it's the case maybe notionally and not the case practically. Well, the idea that I think that you should be hawkish remained within some of these Republican circles. And it really is a a monumental shift from the old era of kind of Robert Taft conservatives in the Midwest being totally isolationist. We want nothing to do with it. And on the progressive side, La Follette wanting absolutely nothing to do with a lot of this international engagement. Um, It was as much that it had now personal, like you said, personal ramifications. Now that it's coming home to roost here, uh, the cr- critique of Carter was as much, you gave away the Panama Canal, which nobody could articulate why that mattered to them. They just, it was a sign America was weak. Well, we had it and now it's gone. So that's what, what you know, typical American weakness under Jimmy Carter. Uh, but it was that when he finally did decide to get tough, you know, in 79 and into 80, uh, you have Operation things like Operation Eagle Claw. You have this, this toothless grain embargo where the Soviets just go and find their grain elsewhere. Sorry to interrupt, but Operation Eagle Claw being uh, the failed rescue of the Iran hostages that ignominiously ended with a bunch of helicopters blowing up in the desert and a lot of national shame was felt because of this. Absolutely. And so it's really with this kind of general frustration that when the government does take action, they don't take it in our best interests. And it's one that I think the fact that it's a great question because it forces us to reanalyze this idea of both populists in general, uh, which is a critique that, uh, you know, luminaries up to Michael Kazin have leveled that they lacked an organized or coherent foreign policy. Um, And it's something that historiographically speaking, uh, authors like Kristen Hoganson out of the University of Illinois have really sought to kind of rectify that you look at the kinds of knowledge that that are exchanged around agricultural commodities, for example. You know, Midwestern farmers are aware when there's a drought in Argentina Right. And why the hell, you know, does somebody in, you know, fly over country, you know, Iowa care about that? Well, because it's going to affect world markets and it's going to affect the price that they can receive for their beef, their grain, what have you. So it's this idea, one, that they are in tune and that there is kind of a populist sort of or there's an avenue for populist organizing or populist thought on foreign policy. But they're really it really is kind of this articulation of why it matters then is not in particularly on the left, is not in this international prestige kind of hand-wringing, but is more in the real day-to-day lived, what Wisconsin Congressman Dave Obey would call bread and butter populism, or what Harkin uh, and others referred to in the 1980s as pocketbook populism, uh, really finding ways to make foreign policy connected to and about those kinds of local issues. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to propose a thesis here. And I, I want I want to hear what you think about this, but I, I'm very interested in this idea of Jimmy Carter as sort of a prefigurative figure of sort of the vanguard of neoliberalism, basically. You know, uh, I think people probably know that Jimmy Carter was sort of began deregulation in this country, and his response essentially to the financial shocks of the '70s was basically to say, "Well, you know, everyone's got to settle for less." In the famous um, you know, Malaise speech or Crisis of Confidence speech and you know his his financial policies as we've talked about his economic policies were essentially that he was going to break the back of labor to end inflation 
Well, and, and I, I should say also, I think that Jimmy Carter is an interesting prefigurative figure of the second Cold War. Essentially, what I mean by the second Cold War is the intensification of the Cold War under Ronald Reagan, in the sense that under his national security advisor, Brzezinski, Carter had uh, the policy of essentially trying to get the Soviet Union to, to drag itself into Afghanistan, which, you know, it's very, I hadn't really thought of the fact that that had such, you know, material consequences for Midwest farmers. But, you know, it's interesting how these things collide in that way. So my thesis that I, I'm hoping that you'll agree with, but we'll see, is essentially that like this, the Carter presidency was, a, you know, a break in the New Deal consensus that represented the movement, the first sort of crack between the post-New Deal inheritance of Democrats as the sort of left-wing party for farmers and, you know, Midwestern people. The, the, the Carter presidency, yeah, it was, it opened this crack that this fissure between uh, the Democratic Party as sort of a populist party for Midwestern farmers into what it is today, which is essentially uh, what the what the Republican Party was in the Gilded Age. You know, it's uh, well, not exactly. It's the party of finance capital. The Democratic the modern Democratic Party is the party of finance capital. And the Republican Party, interestingly, I think, has retained itself as the party of fixed capital, like like farm, um, like farmland or uh regional businesses and things like that. So I, I wonder if you if you agree that 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 this this fissure began opening on a real, you know, sort of a real measurable way with the Carter presidency and and maybe, yeah, just connecting the um Midwestern democratic politics and its different material interests from the national democratic politics that was newly emerging at the national stage. Well it certainly does open up kind of the avenues or the uh it opens up the issues by which politicians, if they're savvy enough, can step into these kinds of new crises that are created by, as you place them on kind of this vanguard of neoliberalism through that deregulation uh, that is particularly harmful to farm-oriented states in the upper Midwest, it, specifically states like South Dakota, and uh, Iowa, North Dakota, where the deregulation of railroad rates leads to the wholesale abandonment of thousands of miles of track across across North, South, North and South Dakota and Iowa, well, really all the states, Minnesota too. And it opens this kind of avenue for these new populist kind of figures to step in. Now, it's important to note that Carter, when he's elected in 76, is seen as a populist, right? He is this outsider who's going to bring good governance, there's the word again, to Washington, but who's also representing rural America. He's identifiable to... Uh, to so many of those voters in rural Iowa, which kind of gave him his start. A farmer himself, in fact. Absolutely. You and know, a nuclear a physicist. So, sorry, can I jump in on this deregulation of railroad rates? Because that's super interesting to me. The view of that in history is generally as having reduced railroad rates and been beneficial to commodity production in the United States, like coal mining in northeastern Wyoming. What you just said is obviously quite different from that. It's not economic to keep lines that make it possible to produce in outlying areas intact when they're not guaranteed a rate on a given on a given route. So you just shut down the network. Similar to what's happened in airlines a couple decades. It took a couple decades for that to play out in airlines. So that Carter is Carter also the deregulation of the rail line of, of airlines. Of, yes, occurred he did both. He did both, yeah. but yeah. but the sort of shutdown of rural service and airlines didn't happen at least right. that much until until a couple decades later. I, I mean, I don't know exactly the details. On, on railroad deregulation, though, that is very uh, interesting. So, you know, you're, I, I was vaguely familiar with the idea that cutting off grain exports to the Soviet Union was devastating and a, a 
cause of the Midwestern farm crisis, but I had never heard that articulated that uh, the, de the railroad deregulation was in the same uh, uh, sort of bin. Absolutely. And it's, it, it's a place into which some of the kind of colorful political characters of the era step in. Uh, we, uh, you had mentioned earlier, I believe we were talking about credit card rates in South Dakota, uh, inviting Citibank in under Governor Bill Janklow in, in 1979. Well, Janklow and the state legislature go so far as to, in 1980, because of that abandonment of the Milwaukee Road, uh, they go so far as to uh, increase the sales tax, I believe it's one penny, uh, but increase the sales tax as a means of buying and operating the railroad by the state. Now, that's something that both South Dakota and North Dakota, uh, the idea of state ownership, are things that they had in the past. North Dakota's nonpartisan league had back in the 1920s set up a state bank and a state mill and grain elevator that are both still in operation today. South Dakota as well had set up a state-owned cement plant out in Rapid City. Uh, but this idea of in the 1980s using state resources to buy and run something was a profoundly transformative or profoundly kind of break from the, you know, deregulation era that we talk about in, uh, you know, kind of the Ronald Reagan administration. And, so, and uh, I think uh, doubly interesting because Janklow is, you know, a Republican. And Janklow is one who, you know, talk about what confusing kind of party lines and party alliances is the most popular governor in South Dakota history. Uh, is winning, is rolling up elections, uh, you know, on the basis of this idea that he did things when it mattered. Um, that is kind of one of those, again, to get to that political character of the Midwest, that kind of nonpartisan idea that this is, you know, are you fixing or are you, you know, addressing our immediate economic concerns uh, is one that Janko played really well. And to their credit, Democrats then in the region saw that and took note. South Dakota Democrats knew we aren't beating Janklow anytime soon, but we still have to run somebody competitively against him in a statewide election. We still have to continue building a party, realizing that here's what he's doing right, but we can offer a broader package. We need to figure out how we can articulate then that package to voters and how we can build a political base. These parties are building themselves or rebuilding themselves from in some cases, in South Dakota, we're not even talking stripping down to the studs. You're knocking the whole building down and just starting over entirely. This is very interesting to me uh, from the standpoint of like, like the conversation that we were having that Andrew and I were having on the previous uh, episode, which uh, you know you haven't seen because it's not out yet. But uh, uh, on the question of state capacity, right? Um, that th there's this idea that anytime you want to do something, you have to outsource it to the private sector, whether you want to build a road, whether you want to, I don't know, um, you know, manufacture uh, pharmaceuticals or something like that, um, you got to outsource it to the private sector because the conception is that the government can't possibly do anything on its own. Um, and yet, you know, here's this sort of native, you know, perfectly um, organic tradition uh, that isn't even that far removed in the past of just like using state power to accomplish something like very concrete for the benefit of uh of uh you know its citizens uh and it is kind of it's stunning to me you know uh to think about how that has completely disappeared right like it's just not part of the discourse at all today it's i i, I don't know i it's not it's not that i had any specific point uh that i want that i want to make with this but just i want to draw up that contrast because it is just such a uh i think a remarkable thing that it just we don't we don't have a conversation no and uh, jerry it's a great point and really the idea that you the last thing you said there's state power used for the benefit of its citizens 
is one of the things in the 1980s that's animating this movement, particularly because that economic crisis is particularly visible on the marker of, you know, what groups like the one I belong to, the Midwestern History Association, love to use, that our logo should be a barn and a farm. Well, you know, Minneapolis and Milwaukee and Chicago would beg to differ, but it's still evocative in the Midwestern imagination that the farm is the economic unit of the Midwestern town or of the Midwestern state. And so as these foreclosures are ramping up, and we're talking losing 10% of family farms across the Midwest in the 19, uh, well, from 76 to 86 throughout the farm crisis, increasingly these kinds of farm protest groups, to bring it back to this very grassroots kind of nature, farm protest groups begin to ally and, and kind of link up around the idea of a mortgage moratorium uh, or a mortgage moratorium on foreclosures. So they take from the 1930s and the, uh, the kind of onset of the Great Depression, they borrow the language, in some cases they rip the, the political cartoons right out of the newspapers and reprint them, saying the raw deal we got in 32, we're still getting an 82. And they would campaign and say, we are in the tradition of the farm holiday movement, uh, the kind of that swept across particularly Iowa and Southern Minnesota in 32. Uh, we are in that same tradition, the same problems are happening, and it's going to be the Great Depression all over again on the family farm, unless the state acts. And so while they're not, uh, while states don't declare necessarily the farm holiday like they'd hoped, um, states like Minnesota and Iowa lead the way on the idea of mortgage or man mandatory debt mediation. So rather than being immediately foreclosed upon, you would go to a state-sponsored and state kind of organized debt mediation service that would make sure that you, uh, you know, that you had as a farmer all adequate and fair resources before you were foreclosed upon. And that included kind of restructuring or settling of your debts as well. So explain, sorry, explain then how, how that becomes, you know, total credit card interest rate re deregulation and anyone can issue one in South Dakota in the 1990s. I was going to ask that question. <laughs> Marshall well, they're, read my mind. they're really twin threads. I mean, the idea of the, if you can boil both of those questions down to the health of the state's economy, right? That if farms are failing in South Dakota, we need to bring something else in to kind of make up that difference. And in the meantime, then if we bring in these companies that Citibank is going to create a few hundred jobs in Sioux Falls, that's going to help offset the losses that we see in the agricultural sector. And it's really a shrewd kind of... A, a shrewd pitting of some of these states against one another that continues to, to really the modern day that you see, uh, you think Scott Walker back when he was governor hanging signs on the Wisconsin cutout as you drove over, uh, over the border that Wisconsin was open for business as you would see as you drove across 94 into uh, from Minnesota into Wisconsin. Uh, in the 1980s, it was a much verbally more kind of uh, aggressive or abusive relationship between Janklo, the Republican governor of South Dakota, and his DFL counterpart in Minnesota, Rudy Perpich. Um, they actually, it, it was called or kind of immortalized in the papers as the border war between those two states about who could attract more businesses, who could keep their, uh, the state's economy afloat longer. Uh, now, a lot of those rivalries are kind of put on the back burner by 84, 85, when people look around and say, oh shit, the farm crisis is really bad. Um, maybe instead of, you know, poking South Dakota or Minnesota in the eye, maybe we should just focus on solving these kinds of problems. Um, but it allowed Janko, especially to say in kind of the same breath, I'm helping farmers by 
trying to make sure they have access to debt mediation at the same time as I'm saying, yeah, bring them all in, deregulate whatever you want, bring in those bankers at the same time. I mean, but both, what, I guess what unites both of those accounts is essentially like a political reaction to economic decline, um, as opposed to, I mean, may, maybe that, I mean, I guess I'd horribly uh, endorse the historiography of Hofstadter. It's like populism is an atavistic movement. Um, this is, I mean, I, that's sort of what I'm gathering from what you're saying, not that I, I endorse that as opposed to one that's like constructive and saying like, we can actually, uh, you know, build a better society and not have decline in the first place. So how do, you know, how do you sort of like see those two elements of populism playing out in politics? Well, and that's where the left-wing populism comes into it. Uh, you see at the same time as some of these groups, and just to kind of name drop them here to give you an idea of, of what they called themselves, who they were, um, groups like the Iowa Farm Unity Coalition uh, and Minnesota Groundswell, which are very much these kind of opposed to foreclosure uh, kinds of movements. Uh, Minnesota Citizens Organized Acting Together, which is the one that leads in 1984, a sit-in at the, at the first state bank, I believe it is, First Bank of Painesville, Minnesota, up in Stearns County once again. Uh, but they begin to come up with these ideas that mortgage for you know foreclosure moratoria should not just be a one-off effort, that we actually need to achieve structural reform and structural change as well. Uh, and they all these groups are kind of in this very nebulous. I had a full page in my recall having to com compile it and getting yelled at for not including all of them, a full page of all the acronyms that I used because there are so many different grassroots groups that you have Wisconsin Farm Community and Iowa Farm Unity and Minnesota Co-Act and South Dakota Rural Organizing Project and all that just, it uh, it just kind of swirls together. But increasingly they're saying we can, we can affect some sort of change at a national level by coming up with a left-wing populist farm policy uh, that raises price supports, that increases, uh, or that takes those kind of ideas of debt restructuring and actually forces the federal government and the Department of Agriculture to put those kinds of processes into place. Um, and it's in part because those groups then empower and elect officials who are going to actually go and fight for that to happen. So this is in the 19, uh, the 19 early 80s is when uh, North Dakotans begin to elect uh, Byron Dorgan, the, uh, the, uh, the state tax commissioner uh, in North Dakota, elect him to the U.S. House as the, the state's only representative. Uh, Iowans continue to elect Tom Harkin, but elevate him in 1984 to U.S. Senate, uh, running a very populist campaign that targeted specifically some of those different uh, some of those different groups like the Iowa Farm Unity Coalition and the North American Farm Alliance. Harkin immediately after the election is on record saying to them, I wouldn't have won this without you. Uh, and that his organizing started back in 83 in going to these meetings and talking in these both union halls and this kind of farm, uh, these farm concern meetings, uh, trying to build these, uh, build these connections and then turn around and amplify those concerns in Congress. Harkin along with, uh, the Rock Island, Illinois representative, late representative Wayne Evans, uh, and a, a couple others in 1983 found an organization called the Congressional Populist Caucus. Uh, and far from, as I think the historiography has trended in a, a, a negative way of saying this is just a style, I think looking specifically at left-wing populism, we can see that it's not just a cynical election winning style, but it is this idea of uh, what Harkin in 1985 calls the Farm Policy Reform Act 
rather than passing the farm bill as you know America does every five years, we re-up food stamps, we give farmers more money for subsidies. Um, in 85, Harkin and some of these populist allies thought they had a real chance to, uh, to rewrite American agricultural policy for good. And they, they pushed this Farm Policy Reform Act uh, ultimately, that fails. They try again in '87, and it fails. Uh, fails again in a slightly rewritten format. But they did offer really specific kind of concrete policy proposals and talked about how they wanted to support small, you know, both small banks and small farms alike. That this was meant to be something that could reach across uh, across kind of occupational lines and reach into labor as well, which I, I haven't done nearly enough on uh, talking about the kind of building of farm labor solidarity. Um, but across kind of all these different groups, they're, they're drawing on these historical lines. And Minnesota is really the place where you can't be a progressive populist without saying, hey, that whole FL part of the DFL, we should probably talk about how farmers and laborers are, should, are, uh, should be in and you know, have kind of these, these avenues, these channels where they should be organizing in kind of solidarity with one another. I think what you're just talking about leads me to a question I've been wanting to ask, which is essentially like, are these movements top down in the sense that the state parties are, you know, determining what strategy is going to work best for their voters, essentially, you know, doing consumer politics, basically saying this is what the people want to buy, let's give it to them. Or is this more a bottom up movement where the actual farmers, laborers, the people, the citizens of the state are saying this is what we demand and essentially recruiting the, the politicians who are willing to listen to that. I mean, you know, in this country, we don't have like membership parties, so it's a little bit different. You know, it's not like the way that people get behind candidates is not the same here as it is like, you know, in England or whatever. But which way is the primary flow of the the sort of the populist movement into um, or the populist tendency like into Democratic Party politics in the 70s and 80s? That's a great question. And the to foreshadow why this movement does peter out by the mid 1990s is particularly when we look at it as a state party movement, you know, the DFL itself or the Iowa Democratic Party uh, or the Democratic Party of Wisconsin, uh, while there are individual candidates who are very good at bringing these kinds of voters into the fold, uh, the parties are at best, uh, you know, trying to build the infrastructure by which, uh, with which they can capitalize on that popular support, but at worst, in some cases, are actively hostile to these uh, to these populist insurgencies. Uh, Paul Wellstone in 1991 was supposed to be the U.S. Senate nominee in Minnesota. They were looking anywhere else because that's you have this rabble-rousing, short, curly-haired Jewish professor from Carleton who's been arrested twice, running for statewide office in a state that is, you know, Scandinavian Protestant. But the funny thing was, was one of the guys who was arrested at that 1984 Painesville sit-in was a curly-haired professor of political science from Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota. Uh, at some of these rallies for farmers, at some of these uh, solidarity days where farmers took their took food to miners who were out of work up on the Iron Range, drove it from southern Minnesota to a community center in, in Minneapolis, and then all the way up to Duluth in 1982-83, Paul Wellstone was part of that caravan and was speaking at these events. He had effectively built this kind of grassroots network across the state and had written to the state Democratic uh, Central state, uh, DFL Central Committee saying, hey, give me the tools, give me the resources, and I'll build you a big damn network of all the people who can, can 
affect change or join this electoral coalition. You just have to let us do it and commit resources to doing it. And they did. They made him the head of the DFL Education Committee uh, in, I believe, 1985. But you can see that this is a process. He's doing this in 82. He's doing this in 78 at the power line fights that we'd referenced earlier. Um, these aren't the, some of the problem is, I think, in especially in modern context, is we assume, okay, every four years we have to care about it, or, you know, when there's an issue, we go fight that fire, but this is an organized over time building of a program. At the party level, one of the parties that does for a hot moment get it is the North Dakota DNPL, uh, under an executive director named Jim Fugley. Uh, they had actually, in 1980, by 1982, taken on a computer processing system in very kind of early days of this, uh, of using computers for get out the vote techniques, where at the Kennedy Center in Bismarck, uh, they would, as soon as the phone book would be released in a town across North Dakota, they would have somebody assigned to drive out to the city. So out, you know, in talking a long state, drive out to Dickinson, get the Dickinson phone book, drive it back. And then they would have two secretaries whose job it was to type in all the names and all the addresses and create a walking list or a walking map of that city. So that when it came time in, uh, you know, in election season to go knock on doors, they knew exactly who was at that door, exactly how they'd talked about voting in the past, and exactly what kind of, uh, what kind of flyer they would leave on the, on the door handle. It was an organized process that focused on building these, these networks throughout the states. The problems were, uh, and North Dakota gets hailed in the early 1990s for how good and sophisticated their get out the vote network was relative to states across the country. The problem was in other states like South Dakota and even Wisconsin in 84, those state parties are debating whether or not to buy a computer. They're debating whether or not it could be useful and they should actually allocate the resources to doing that. In a lot of these cases, it's, it's a turf battle. Um, there are folks at the state party level who aren't willing to give up that kind of power or that authority. Um, it's There are ideological differences. Uh, the uh, In some states, Minnesota in particular, groups like the DFL Feminist Caucus were very adept at, at kind of the party structure and how at caucuses you take over kind of the mechanisms of party politics. And they had a reputation for being rather, a, a, gen, a very gendered reputation, but one for being rather prickly in terms of how they went about their politics. Um, and so when this turns into these kind of turf battles um, across the Midwest, you see the kind of the, the stunting of that kind of political coalition building. And it was really folks like, uh, like Wellstone in Minnesota, Russ Feingold in Wisconsin, who we've not mentioned yet, but who were very good at kind of working these back channels and making sure they were involved in, in talking about these as economic and class-based issues rather than identitarian kind of politics. I, I, once again, I, I feel like I have to draw the uh, distinction between, you know, the, the, the history that Corey just related and, you know, the modern conventional wisdom where we're now told that, you know, all this get out the vote stuff, like that's all, it, it doesn't work. Like, I mean, what are you talking about? You're going to go knock on people's doors? It doesn't work. Right. Like that's the that's the contemporary uh, wisdom of, you know, our uh, most sophisticated number crunchers, which is to say that the people who, uh, you know, are, are the cleverest with Excel. <laughs> um, I, I have to say that I, I personally, uh, you know, have some doubts. About I, I would just like to interject here to hearken back to a previous episode of this uh, scene podcast that David Shore once literally said that exactly that to me, that get out the vote doesn't matter. No, no, he said it multiple times. I mean, this is not like a hidden position of his. He uh, has um, 
declaimed it repeatedly on Twitter and in other contexts. Um, yeah, this is not like secret. I mean, you know, it's, it's not secret that he believes this, like, (laughs) but, um, yeah, I, I, um, yeah, not sure I'm convinced. And, and look, I mean, I'm not the one in the modern context. I'm not the one crunching the numbers. You know, I can barely crunch the numbers from, from, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago and and have it make sense. God knows quantitative history. Nobody, everybody thinks you're a crackpot or 80 years old. If you start talking quantitative history these days, I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm not trying to like make a point about quantitative history. I'm just saying that I think that there's a, there's a uh, very um, clear discursive difference between the way that I think that, that it sounds to me like, I mean, obviously I wasn't part of that, but the way that it seems to me that the people who were doing this get out the vote operation conceptualize their engagement with politics versus the way that is conceptualized now. And concomitantly, the methods that they afforded themselves and that they made use of, uh, you know, were also, uh, you know, we're also completely different. Although in a sense, you know, th- what they lacked was not any sort of sophistication in a in a uh, like a ma- or in, in terms of a mathematical understanding, what they lacked was just computational power that didn't exist then. Um, whereas now we have so much of this computational power, uh, but we use it for like the most useless things, right? I mean, we've convinced ourselves that we can replace this sort of like operation of actually like convincing voters and like talking to them and whatever with some sort of like I don't know micro targeted. I don't even know what to call it, but like uh, that we that we can uh, bypass this process of doing politics. Right. That's that's the point. And that it's I was a great point. To. It's a great point. It's one that. The, so the the kind of quote or what, what came to mind as you were saying that was one of the other populist kind of leaders of this left wing populism in the 1980s was an agricultural commissioner from the state of Texas named Jim Hightower. Uh, and he's the one who in 1988 came and gave a speech, you know, um, that George Bush is born with a, a silver foot in his mouth. And that might've been Ann Richards. I could be mixing up the two, but again, this kind of pushback against the elitism of the democratic and the Republican parties. Um, but Hightower says in 1980, and he really has a huge influence on Harkin as well, kind of coming around to these ideas of populism, that you can't have a mass movement without the masses. And that there is a deeply personal kind of connection to some of this. That's not just a number on a page, but it is, you know, even the optics of, in the case of Jesse Jackson, of a black dude in 1986 driving a tractor down a street in Missouri. Um, you know, that there are these kinds of these optics and this being seen and being heard and being felt. Um, that is one that, I, and I'm not to say that, you know, David Shore or anybody else that, that hey, the numbers don't matter, right? That it's, it's a matter of how do we use that targeting power. Uh, and, and North Dakota was certainly a sophisticated state in the 1980s at using that to specifically target and use that to spur conversations then, use that to spur that kind of personal campaigning that I think isn't an intensely, particularly on the plains, an intensely Midwestern thing uh, in states like North Dakota or, or South Dakota where you go somewhere and you know they have a relative that invariably you know or that you've met or something because there are only a few hundred thousand people in the damn state. Um, it's that personal kind of connection and touch that really does matter and play a, a huge role in the politics of those states. And it's something that this left-wing populism as a style or as a campaign kind of tool is something that's particularly uh, left-wing populism manages to get its head around 
uh, and in at least the case of a number of state and local uh, elected officials does manage to really effectively do. Uh, and, and in terms of winning back these Senate seats that are lost in 1978 and 1980, to the point that by 1996, eight of the 10 Senate seats held in this five state upper Midwest are Democrats. Both North Dakotan seats, both South Dakotan seats after 1996, uh, one in Iowa, one in Minnesota, and both in Wisconsin that I think adds up to eight, but that's why I'm a historian and not quantitative too. Um, but you see again this rebuilding in terms of just numbers on the page that they're electing and effectively electing statewide elected officials to go kind of do that, uh, do the job of representing the people in Washington. You sort of narrated this history from the early 80s, from the late 70s to the 80s, where you have a, basically a national democratic administration that uh, puts in place policies that are unfavorable to the economic conditions in the five states that you're talking about. The Republicans in those states make hay over the economic cataclysm that results, and then the Democrats kind of adjust themselves or figure out a way of surviving politically, and in fact, thriving politically, kind of taking some uh, inspiration from what the Republicans do to to vindicate the uh, populist backlash to uh, unfavorable national democratic politics in that period. So, in the you know twenty early to twenty tens to the mid twenty tens, we sort of had the parallel playing out of um, a national democratic administration that undertook policies that were unfavorable to the upper Midwest economically. And we had the Republican backlash to that, making a great deal of political hay. But thus far, we have not seen the kind of third step of the same historical trajectory that happened in the 80s, where you get a kind of pop, you know, a left populism, as you've characterized it, which, I, you know, I have to admit, up until this interview, I had been sort of skeptical that upper Midwest populism had been left wing following the 30s or anything like that. And, you know, I think you've made a good case that that really existed as a political tradition. But the question is, why is it dead <laughs> now? Why did that not happen in the 2010s to where we are now? That's a, it's a great question. I, I'm going to dive back into the mid 90s, if that's okay to, to answer part of it, is that when we talk in the 80s about what anim, animates this uh, left wing populism in the 80s, uh, the family farm, the 1996 uh, Freedom to Farm well, the 1996 act known colloquially as freedom to farm really plays a role in gutting uh, a lot of this kind of, uh, this kind of agricultural, uh, you know, this ethos of, of federal government supporting American family farming. Uh, family farmers continue to, if they can't get big, continue to get out to the point that farms are consolidating across the country. And you see them, the huge swaths of rural territory that were up for grabs in the mid-1980s now have fallen more to this idea of, okay, well, the free market has worked, it's played out. Part of what did that as well, you talk about uh, national democratic uh, kind of national Democrats shooting them, you know, shooting kind of the locals in the foot. Uh, free trade and NAFTA is something that really that that damages uh, Midwestern Democrats from the Clinton era onwards. Um, the idea that you know steel workers in the you know on the Iron Range are hurt by um, uh, are hurt by some of these national trade policies. The idea within towns that uh, that you know meatpacking and that kind of labor has uh, you know destabilized had the audacity to ask for a fair share of the pie in the 1980s. Um, and then led to see what you made these uh, these plant owners at Hormel or Genio or whatever do. You made them import Hispanic laborers into our town. Uh, 
you know, some of these some of these kind of more traditional national conservative cudgels of race and of gender uh, are, are definitely now used and wielded more effectively at a national level in a way that uh, in the 1980s they had not been. Uh, the, the idea of that National Conservative Political Action Committee that I talked about in the 80s that came and, and targeted Gaylord Nelson and targeted um, John Culver in Iowa and targeted George McGovern in South Dakota, Democrats scrambled and got their act together. Whereas in a, especially in a post-Citizens United world, um, it's, it's a lot tougher than for kind of that people power to organize in such a way that it's able to overcome some of that corporate messaging. I think uh, there are still definitely avenues that that are there, but I think when you've gone perhaps even two Democratic administrations now, both Clinton and Obama, where there's been a, a, a withering on the vine in some cases of these local Democratic parties, um, compounding failure upon failure to party build is, is now really we're seeing in some of these you know midterms in 2022 where we're talking parts of Minnesota and Wisconsin that have been blue for 30 years now historically, it might not even be competitive. So a number of kind of factors, both structural and inter and demographic, but um, I think the, the base point you're making there, Marshall, that kind of idea that national democratic, uh, you know, leadership dropping the ball and Republicans making hay is something that particularly at the local level, national Democrats aren't listening to, you know, the old maxims of Tip O'Neill, right? All politics are local and you know, damn if they don't find a way to kind of forget that every, uh, you know, every two to four years. Yeah, I mean, my own two cents is that, you know, the sort of career uh, uh, incentives for the David Shores of the world are so much in favor of careering uh, the patronage of national donors with a sort of elite set of interests that, you know, aren't the kind of language that would win you those, uh, that territory back, uh, you know, just sort of means that no one, you know, like, they can kind of in an intellectual sense, see the uh, danger that that uh, loss of territory uh, uh, signifies for the party, but it's in no one's interest to actually do anything about it. Nationalization and globalization of those kinds of, and it might be a, not the right word to use their globalization, but, you know, the idea that what's bankrolling some of these progressive organizations in the 1980s are groups like the Dayton Foundation here in Minnesota. Um, the one who is fundraising and bankrolling some of these progressive organizations in Minnesota is actually Mark Dayton himself. Uh, they're saying, hey, Dayton will write us a check if we go to him and ask. Future Democratic um, governor of Minnesota. Yeah, but from Minnesota, crucially speaking, not, you know, not not uh, uh, the people who fundraise at Nancy Pelosi's uh, or whatever, the, the wine cave. <laughs> and you look at who owns those, you know, what has happened to them, the ownership of something like a Dayton since then. I mean, yeah, they, are, it's a grocery store, a regional grocery chain, right? I assume some part of the department national store. Chain, it, department it, owns, store. It, it owns Target or it did. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, these uh, again, kind of some of these uh, as these companies go national, right? You see, kind of the the uh, the thinning out of some of these uh, democratic kind of progressive organizations, donors, um, and some of them don't help themselves. The citizens act, citizen action scandal of the of the mid '90s when they were uh, taking a bunch of money from the Teamsters and giving some money back to them kind of ruined some of the the. Uh, ruin some of the momentum of these organizations. Some live on, you know, Herb Cole in, in Wisconsin still kicking uh, and, you know, manages to get himself a Senate seat in 1988 for his troubles, um, but is, is in part helping to kind of fund some of these organizations. But to that broader point that you made, Marshall, you're 100% right. It's that, that where the money is coming from and where some of these calculated decisions have been made is that it just ain't in the Midwest. And so we're going to look elsewhere and, and nationalize kind of our causes and our fundraising. 
Right. Well, and I think, you know, an important result of that is, you know, as this sort of finance capital coastal faction of the Democratic Party has found itself in the ascendancy, the centralization of money away from local sources has meant that their priorities are the ones that carry in the, you know, decisions taken by the national organization. And, you know, you can see the results of that have been the complete withering away of state Democratic Party structures in pretty much every state that's not within that sort of the, the sort of the left, the, the typical like, you know, Democratic strongholds in on the East Coast. I think West Jerry's going to tell us something about the New York machine under Cuomo. Uh, so, so as a as a resident of uh, you know of the very heart, the very capital of uh, well, capital uh, of possibly the world, I can tell you with certainty that it has completely withered away here as well. And the local party machinery in New York State is in uh, such a completely dismal, um, you know, it, it's it's such a depressing uh, thing to see because it doesn't do anything. It only exists basically to uh, shuffle sinecures around. And, uh, you know, there, it's, it's run by this guy named Jay Jacobs, who is just like, you know, uh, all of the worst conservative instincts of like, uh, you know, Long Island Democrats that you can think of, just like pile them all onto this guy. Uh, it sucks and nobody does anything. Uh, and we had a we had an election uh, in New York City this summer that where a number of um, number of propositions Actually, this 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 was state level. A bunch of propositions were on the ballot, and uh, the party did absolutely nothing to make them pass. These were all like pretty good, uh, pretty good things. Uh, Republicans campaigned super hard against them, um, and they failed. Like a bunch of uh, these were things like um, God. Now I'm like blanking on this, but one of these was basically just like um, uh, early voting, for example. Like this is something that you know, according to New York state law, has to be passed. Like via this referendum process and it just went down like it would have made uh it would have made um new york a vote by mail state right uh, with early registration and it just died not because people in new york don't support it but because there had been zero effort to make any of this happen right so yeah we're at the heart of financial capital and well jerry you, you got to move to the progressive utopia of utah where we have universal vote by mail um and <laughs> Yeah, how does Utah have it and we don't? Well, in, in Utah, the, the controlling party wants the people to vote. That's the reason. Oh, oh, ouch. All right, so let's uh, let's transition to the second phase of our conversation here where we do a little bit more of a freeform riff on some of this history that we've been talking about and try to figure out if there's any lessons we could learn from it, if, if there's any lessons that we should sort of unlearn from it. Um, and also, I think this connects to a conversation and a discussion that we've really been we've been having and been interested in since we started doing the podcast all those many weeks ago, um, which is, you know, uh, what is the effect of the kinds of political actions, like bottom-up political actions um, that used to work? Do they still work? Are they still connected to a responsive power structure, or are they just sort of repetitive motions that we've learned in an era when they actually did something, but now we just perform the ritual, but the resulting actions that we want don't actually occur. And so I, I think to, to launch into that discussion, Corey, I'm, I'm interested in how did the voters, the uh, constituents for left-wing populism in the upper Midwest in, in the 70s, 80s, and you know, basically until it stopped being an operative political tendency, 
how did they exert pressure on their lawmakers? How how were they able to um, to actually change the people in power or change their minds? Let's just let's just have the uh, the history of it, and then we'll maybe try to to uh, transfer that to a more contemporary context. Yeah. So. I had mentioned earlier kind of calling on those old ideas of the farm holiday association or the farm, farm holiday movement. Um, they, the American agricultural movement had in 1970, it led a tractorcade to Washington DC, um, driving tractors across the country into Washington DC as a means of calling attention to their plight. Uh, in the 1980s, that was uh, replicated in a series of very angry, but very well attended rallies uh, in the state capitals across the upper Midwest. So 20,000 people, give or take, I think at the St. Paul, uh, at the Capitol in St. Paul, uh, similar scenes in uh, Iowa. They also managed to fill Hilton Coliseum on February 28th in 1980. Oh boy, I should, should have known the year before I launched into the sentence. Let's say 1985 at uh, the Farm Crisis Day uh, Action Day rally uh, that the everybody from Branstad to the leaders of the Farm Bureau to Farmers Union leaders to the Archbishop of Des Moines attended. Um, these rallies that people knew that they had to be at uh, to the point where they'd drawn 14,000 people to the city of, uh, I believe, or 14,000, fewer than that, maybe 8,000 people to the city of Pierre that had a population of about 12,000 at the time is what it was um, in South, again, sorry, the capital of South Dakota that we're talking. Famously small state capital. Ridiculously small. <laughs> <laughs> but but turning up in such in such numbers and making it clear that these were community concerns um, and protesting on the Capitol steps, protesting very vocally, very in, in a disruptive fashion. Um, and it's an important place to note that these are some of the privileges that were afforded in terms of both the, the race and the occupation of the people who were doing the protesting. Um, that when Midwestern populism was broadly speaking a you know a white working class activity, uh, it, it was in some ways more acceptable than similar movements. You know, thinking from the for anything from Occupy to um, to Black Lives Matter protests, or even um, like the the teachers' actions in Wisconsin. A hundred percent. When Scott Walker tried to break the back of the public union there, and largely I think succeeded. Um, yep. Yeah, no, it, you're you're absolutely right that these kinds of uh, these acts of public protest have perhaps lost eff efficacy in some ways. Um, you know, I think part of my contention might be that there needs to that some of what needs to happen is that there needs to you know be some sort of behind the scenes kind of organizing that that perhaps I'm not seeing, just not seeing, or perhaps that doesn't exist. Um, in such a way that coordinates across different interest groups, right? That, you know, if we're going to talk about things like the black vote or like the labor vote or like the farm vote, then if that's the kind of political turf on which you're playing, um, if those are the rules temporarily, at least by which you have to play, then if you are a left of center, you know, progressive and populist organizer, then those are the groups you're going to have to reach out to and find common ground on which uh, on which you can stand and but not just say hey okay we've got a farmer we've got a you know a black person we've got a, uh, a labor union leader we've got a rabbi and a duck as well but that in fact we have substantial buy-in then from those communities in such a way that it, it leads to some sort of effective party and kind of movement building i'm going to say something pessimistic 
and I want to see if you agree with this or not. Uh, and my pessimistic take is it's either not desirable or possible even. The limits of the possible have been so constricted by the you know so-called economic reality uh, that obtains in 2020 that in sort of dying gasps of the uh, mid-century like labor consensus did not obtain, uh, that we could afford to be a Democrat and a, you know, a democratic politician and to advocate policies that like cost real money and that had real consequences for people who have a lot of money. And that that means that maybe part of what was possible then had something to do with the fact that the people in power actually wanted to do those things or could do them. Whereas now it seems to me that they either don't want to or can't or feel they can't without you know, making unacceptable compromises uh, which obviously, you know, I would quarrel with the unacceptability of those compromises because it seems to me that the thing that they're, you know, dead set on preserving is the ability for people to be insanely, ridiculously wealthy. And, you know, just the imperatives of, of the sort of, you know, uh, international finance of which they are now sort of the, the handmaid. It seems to me more like that actually in a lot of this sort of discursive language of national Democrats, that they're actually sort of preparing themselves to say, well, we didn't actually want to win those rural working class white people anyway. I mean, this is sort of what the, um, you know, the deplorables discourse does for the National Democratic Party is it says that actually it's racist for us to, to want these people to vote for us. And the fact that they don't is actually a good thing. So my question for you is like, uh, yes, I think that you're, you're correct about, you know, what would need to happen if the people who were in charge of you know, coordinating these efforts actually wanted to win these votes. But do you think there's any evidence that the people currently in charge actually want to win these votes? They don't, they're not leaving records behind the way they used to for me. So it's tougher <laughs> in the way that I, in the way that I can, I mean, it's, I occupy, right. there's kind of a question about what will the next, you know, generation of political history look like in part because of the, just the diversity of how people communicate now. Well, there's going to be a lot of tweets. I, and I thank God that I have told myself I will not write history beyond the year 2000. And so nice. I just, you know, regardless of my old advanced age, if I'm still lucky to be on Earth in 2050, if, uh, you know, or if there is an Earth or whatever else. Well, you I, know, I just, I just hope for future scholars that we're able to find all of Hillary's emails because, I need you know, to know, those are going to be an important source. Uh, <laughs> I'm only like one quarter joking, by the way. <laughs> Surely that, you know, surely somebody can, can dig those up some, well, who knows if they can. Um, but the idea that you know, figuring out what these different parties want to kind of win or what they're okay with losing today, um, I think certainly speaks to this broader kind of nationalization of, of politics that, that yeah. somebody in part because perhaps this is a generalization, this is why I try not to wander beyond 2000 as well, because I hear political scientists and political observers screaming at me already. But where we turn, we tend to think about kind of what makes you worthy of support in the Democratic Party as being a check all these boxes. Um, what was particularly effective in how the new right built its coalition in the 1980s was check this one box. And so if you're a, somebody in Arizona or in Florida getting pelted with, with Richard Vigory's mass uh, direct mail, it says, hey, Gaylord Nelson, Wisconsin is a baby killer. Great. I will send $5 or $10 to support the political action committee designed to get him uh, unelected. I think we can see that in such a way today that 
you know, in terms of kind of this Democratic Party, you need to be able to check all those boxes where it was in kind of this Republican or conservative or right populist or whatever Trump populist we're calling it now. Um, there need to be kind of a few things that you are opposed to, obviously, but if you can just boil it down to socialism or, you know, boil it down to hating America or something, it's much easier to do that than it is to build a broader kind of movement along all these ideas when for some that they're, you know, for some within kind of the left, left-leaning ranks, one wrong answer can be disqualifying or, you know, or problematic or whatever the phrase might be. Uh, yeah, there's a really good essay in The Baffler by Rick Perlstein about the Vigri. Oh, it's, a, it's a classic. It's, ca- it's called The Long Con. The Long Con, yes. I couldn't remember what it was called, but thank you for supplying that. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I reread it every couple of years. It's, uh... it's very, very instructive. It's very funny, too. A lot of characters. So I don't know exactly how this connects to what we've been talking about, except that it seems like a different, a, another avenue we could have gone down is to talk a little bit about more urban labor in um, especially Wisconsin and Minnesota, because that's what that those are the states that have cities, um, like big cities. Uh, you know, Iowa has what Cedar Rapids and Des Moines, and you know, Sioux oh, Falls well. is not is not a small city, but I mean, it's it's not a you know, it's a it's not even like a regional city really. It's sort of a uh, well, anyways, not to disparage those states. North Dakota, of course, has no cities. A vast a vast windswept plain, bereft of all life. Exactly. Well, yeah. Significant shale oil reserves um, occasionally bring life to the region, but uh, besides that, very little is going on there. Yeah, but to that original kind of idea about urban labor, it's important that we we need to kind of remember that that when we talk the one the you know census definition of urban right is what twenty five hundred people or something like that. So. Um, but that in these small to medium-sized Midwestern towns, when you aggregate in Eastern Iowa, you know, Clinton and Keokuk and Davenport and Burlington and Cedar Rapids and Waterloo, and all of a sudden you have those in two or three different congressional districts, yeah. then suddenly the power of those individual local labor, you know, labor hotbeds is amplified and does matter. Um, the, yeah. The Clinton corn strike in 1980, as dramatic as that name sounds in Iowa, um, you know, does kind of have this, these reverbs. When farmers are attempting to build solidarity with with laborers, they bring food to out of work John, I believe John Deere strikers in Waterloo, Iowa, and that's ringing in the back of my mind a couple months ago when when they're on strike at Deere because I'm thinking to myself, almost 40 years ago to the very month you had farmers who were struggling with low prices and with foreclosures, bringing sausages and having like a pancake breakfast basically for these farmers and then sharing political ideas, swapping stories about how, hey, we're all getting screwed over by the man or we're all getting screwed over by the federal government. And maybe yeah. if we all get together, we can affect some sort of uh, some sort of change. So it's kind of this remembering that these communities, even if they are small, do operate in this kind of social fabric that that does elect, whether it is, you know, not just to the U.S. Senate or something, but to the state house in Iowa, to the state house in a state like Wisconsin that's gerrymandered all the hell, um, that part of it is going to be having to re, unless the courts are going to intervene and redraw maps, that you're going to have to start winning some of these local elections. And that's, that's something that back in the, in the eighties and nineties, the democratic party in, uh, in Wisconsin was particularly good at doing because it had representatives like Dave Obie, who represented North and Northwestern Wisconsin. 
Um, so kind of centered on cities like Wausau, Stevens Point, Wisconsin Rapids, and stretching all the way up to, um, for Jerry, sorry, not being sure your Wisconsin geography familiarity, we're talking more or less like here, kind of if this is Lake Superior. He's, he's pointing to his hand if you're experiencing this in, in audio medium. It's the top, the, the top part of his hand kind of by the Upper Peninsula. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, but also worth noting that these are uh, area, like, uh, areas where paper milling is an incredibly important industry. Absolutely. And so the OB has these papers for every single election. He had a very, very involved campaign manager and kind of local advisor named Jerry Madison. And Jerry and his wife, Nelda, um, would produce these 25-page reports of every single precinct. Um, you know, Bayfield P2, and Bayfield is just, it's basically a, now a tourist town on, on Lake Superior. Um, but Bayfield P2 has been trending in a negative direction for a couple of years now. Uh, we might want to go back and focus on bread and butter populist issues or native issues and guns have been proven divisive in these towns. And that information was shared as well down ballot with local Democrats as a means of helping them get out the vote at the same time. Um, this kind of broad commitment to again, um, building these parties and in part because Obi and others were saying, look at the national level, help just ain't coming. It's not showing up, the money's not gonna come in. And so we have to do something about it right now. So yeah, one thing I was completely struck by there is uh, when you said, you know, the deer strike uh, was preceded by a deer strike um, 40 years prior. And, you know, that connection was alive when you said um, between the farm crisis and the crisis of 32, people saying this is what happened 50 years ago. I don't know in those communities if if their memory, if the memory stretches back 40 years now, uh, I certainly, you know, was not aware of that historical context of the, uh, you know, the most, the more recent deer strike. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about, you know, what happens as sort of like a, a collateral consequence when it as, you know, sort of a, a coastal democratic party abandons and severs the ties with these um, local party structures. And then they, you know, the, what, what could be, sort of a tradition of, you know, we're getting, we're getting a raw deal yet again. I don't know how operative that historical memory is now. Yeah. I mean, not to speak about, uh, you know, the, the Midwestern history, but I imagine that once those kinds of connections and communities are gone, it's like, it's very hard to, um, put them back together. Um, and, you know, again, I'm as, as the, uh, as the representative of the, uh, the East Coast elite uh, on this on this uh, conversation before the pandemic, I was sort of like somewhat moderately involved in like the local Democratic club here, which is kind of like the uh, nexus around which um, New York City politics operates. But even in this context, it's like the way that things are done is it's like like that stuff that Corey was describing about the way that um, you know Obi would be using his his power and his like his reach to build some kind of like coherent movement. That is not something that I have experienced here. Like the, these clubs are primarily like places that exist. They're sort of like, you know, they have like a social component to them, but they're really, they're kind of places for people to get together in kibitz. And they're, <clears throat> they're really mostly uh, also places where, um, you know, judges come to do their campaigning because of the bizarre way that New York City elects its like local judicial officials. Um, but they really like don't have a functional, they're vestigial appendages of a, of an older order during which they had a more, 
coherent purpose that aligned with, you know, actual like broader political trends. And they still perform some of these functions, but they do it in a way that sort of is detached from most thing, most like things that actually influence politics at the state level. Not all of them, because they are kind of responsible for some things that are like re relevant to the state party, but the state party itself is such a weak institution that it's really just kind of like, it's, it's a big mess. You know, I, I think, the, you know, this structure has been allowed to atrophy to the point where it's, it's hard to see how it can be really used effectively at this point. So that's, that's my local perspective from here. Yeah. And I would just say that the brand of, you know, the democratic party is so tarnished, you know, in 1982, the, you know, betrayals of, NAFTA and sort of the neoliberal turn had not come to full fruition yet. So, you know, there was a certain cachet that you could have by saying, you know, the party of Roosevelt, this is remember 32, this is 82. After Clinton and after Obama and, you know, during Biden, I don't know if I think you would, I think you'd have to find a different uh, sort of poll star because first of all, FDR is no longer in living memory. And second of all, um, you know, the only things in, in most people's living memory of the Democratic Party, stretching all the way back to the late 70s, is of, a, you know, a party of, of international capital, of globalization, of austerity, of policies that had extremely deleterious material effects on specifically these Midwestern communities, but not, you know, not just those places. I mean, the concerns of uh, urban laborers on the East Coast materially were also badly affected by these decisions that were made. I don't I don't know what what bow to put on this, but just all, all of which is just to say, I think you're, you're doubly right about the the bonds being difficult to reconnect, because I think that that name, even just the, the, the name of the Democratic Party has has lost so much uh, of whatever value it once had in these among these people and, and in these communities that you'd have to find even a different, you know, a different way of even just having a brand, you know, to put it in extremely crass and crude terms. Thankfully, there is, and I, I, on that pessimistic note, I'll offer an optimistic note, I suppose, uh, which is out of character for me, but um, <laughs> that part of the kind of, I hope, enduring impact of my research is to remind us or resuggest that there is in the Midwest a language and a tradition of being a, of this kind of specific hyper-localized kind of left-wing populism. That in Minnesota, I'm not just a Democrat, I am a DFLer, and how can I reclaim the meaning of those terms? Right. Uh, in Wisconsin, they still do celebrate, I think it's been canceled the last two years at least, but they still celebrate fighting Bob Fest um, in honor of, and actually started by uh, Ed Garvey, a guy who ran for the Senate in Wisconsin in 1986, ran against Tommy Thompson, I believe taking no contributions over $100 in 1998, um, lost narrowly in 86 and got his ass kicked in 98. Um, turns out he needed money to win an election. But what Garvey was good at doing and specifically kind of evoking was this uh, tradition of progressivism in Wisconsin. It means something, we need to capture that. You can even look at something like the Harkin Steak Fry in Iowa, which we kind of roll our eyes and say, all right, you know, mid provincials and their, you know, their kind of rituals. But that Harkin Steak Fry meant that kind of personal political connection um, way back when that, that Iowans could make to their elected officials. There are symbols out there uh, of Midwestern yeah. progressive populism that 
were seemingly dead in the 1980s until a generation found a new way and a new language with which they could resurrect that. Um, I can't promise, and God knows I'd make a whole lot of money in a different field other than history if I could. Um, I can't promise that that's how it works, but I think there are those tools out there that political observers and political, re uh, political organizers would do well to pay a lot more attention to as a means of rebuilding some of the uh, some of the broken trust and some of the broken alliances that exist in the region. I guess the knot to untie even before getting that to that stage is like as we've been talking about with you know the sort of the centralization of the the financing of elections, Citizens United, all these issues. It makes it hard for someone who actually wants to win on that kind of platform, or even just you know undoing the knot of like making it so that it's actually politically viable to run elections by promising to do something from like a left of center perspective. Sorry, one of the points I, yeah, I should have made at some point uh, earlier as well is that how do you break through a national party and do that? Yeah, um, That was right. what the promise of Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition. You can't have a conversation about progressive populism in the 1980s without talking about Jesse Jackson's campaign for the presidency. Yep. He got his advice specifically from a guy named Merle Hansen, a Nebraskan who um, was a member of the North American Farm Alliance. That's where he got his farm policy from, from one of these local Midwestern progressive populists. Right. Um, it, it's the attempt to break through into these kind of national windows. Uh, Harkin runs for president in 92 and is beaten by a, a, somebody who could talk folksier and say less, uh, but who could play the saxophone on, a, on the Arsenio Hall show and show a good doing it. You know, there were these opportunities for Midwestern progressive populism to kind of crack into the national discourse, and they weren't successful there. Yeah. But they sure were successful at the state level and remained that way longer than just 1992. And it's understanding that dichotomy or that difference between national presidential elections and state and local elections. Right. That's one, if you want kind of a, a inroads back into rebuilding some of those coalitions, it's focusing less and less on those national, um, you know, kind of national political conversations and relocalizing right. politics. Unfortunately, in that era of money, it's a hell of a lot tougher to do, right? Right. And I think, it, I think Jackson's a good example to end on because I think one of the, I think, anticipated objections to drawing any kind of lesson from Midwestern populism is saying, oh, well, you know, sure, a bunch of white farm landowners, you know, well, you know, that's not, that doesn't make any sense, you know, like, oh, a bunch of white, yeah, yeah, like white male farmer landowners. That, that it has no, that it has no relevance for sort of like modern politics, right? Right. It's, it's sort of like the classic objection to like, oh, we can't do Scandinavia here because, you know, that's just an ethno, you know, white ethno state and blah, blah, blah. I think, first of all, that ignores so some of the you know demographics and history of the midwest and the you know the midwest the upper midwest specifically being a very interesting um as one of the places where the great migration kind of you can trace where it sort of ended which is somewhere between milwaukee and minneapolis and also as as Corey mentioned before when he was talking about the meatpacking plants i mean minnesota i don't know if people know this but minnesota is if not the biggest one of the biggest uh meatpacking there's all sorts of company towns for meatpacking all across the south and west of the state. And the people who live in those communities now are Mexicans. They're Somalis. They're Ethiopians. The, the de-unionization of those places. And actually, I come from proud Hormel stock in Austin, Minnesota. So my ancestors worked in the plant that makes spam, you know. My grandfather, I believe, was the mayor of Austin during, I think, I can't remember, if, or my great-grandfather, sorry, was the mayor of Austin during one of the big strikes in either the 70s or the 80s. The big one was in 86, I think. 
Yep, the P, I think P9 it, strike in 85, 86. Yeah, no, it's a, that kind of anti-labor or that deunionization is the right word. Right. Um, and the in, in some cases, conscious importation or recruitment of, of laborers of color as a means of driving that kind of wedge between, um, you know, between union and town is right. the challenge I guess, is steeper, especially on the issues of kind of, of race and of gender. Yeah, and the urban right. plays, you know, plays a huge role in that as well. Yeah, and I guess what I'm saying is like, you know, acting like the uh, Midwest political tradition, I mean, even going all the way back to the 1890s is some kind of nativist, white only uh, movement. I mean, the history of populism in the late 19th century is is not that. And there's there's outgrowths of it that become that. Uh, and that's sort of, that becomes the the caricature of these movements. Uh, you know, the history of someone uh, like Tom Watson is is very interesting to trace as someone who went from trying to create a working class coalition uh, in the South, in Georgia specifically, at least from Georgia, um, of uni uniting black and white farmers and workers to someone who became one of like the most notorious anti-Semites in US, the US political tradition. <laughs> so, um, but, but the, the modern upper Midwest is, you know, it has part of the Rust Belt, Milwaukee and, and central Southeast Wisconsin. It has a lot of cities where a significant portion of the population are, uh, uh, are immigrants who went to work in meatpacking facilities. And it has a, like you said, a tradition of someone literally trying to create the rainbow coalition, uh, uh, uniting uh, all sorts of different working people uh, of all different backgrounds who paid a special attention to this as not just a place to pander to necessarily, but as a place to, to draw inspiration from and to learn some lessons from. So I think if there's one thing we can end on, it's sort of a, a a positive thing is that I think that, that you know the the upper Midwest is not just a place where you can find a you know a white male farmer landowner history of politics. You can find that, but you can find a lot more than that. And Corey, maybe you you, you want to have the last word on this. It is so much more, and and part of the recognition that the progressive populists of the 1980s came to is that we need to plan for. Uh, a more diverse Midwest. We need to acknowledge the changes that are occurring in this region. And we need to build a political coalition that, that finds language along which you can unite those disparate, uh, those disparate groups. We need to overcome identity and talk about class. Uh, that's part of that enduring Midwestern political tradition is, is finding the symbols and finding the kind of class-based language by which you can overcome some of those, uh, some of those things that remain potentially divisive. But as the Midwest has become more diverse, it's become tougher to build those those coalitions. And that's one of the main challenges that, you know, the progressive populists hypothetically of tomorrow will uh, will definitely face both in the Midwest and nationally. Well, thank you so much, Corey. We Corey, really appreciate thanks. That you. was great. We really appreciate you sharing your time and your expertise with us. I, I, I'm a big fan of the history of the Midwest. And like I said, a proud son of Minnesota, but uh, you really put me to shame when it comes to uh, the amount of things that you know and the uh, amount of just the amount of context that you can give us to have a really i think just such an interesting conversation so i really appreciate that so um, i'm just glad those seven seven years of school weren't wasted too no i appreciate the chance of talking for the the thought-provoking questions i've actually in the the notes i was taking I'm, i was starring things so like hey you need to write this into the the most updated copy of my manuscript <laughs> yeah Corey, what are you working on what's uh can we expect any uh uh publications forthcoming as soon as i can get a contract for the book it'll be out um coming i think now i think the timeline is summer 2023 an article on progressive agricultural policy in the midwest 
from it from the mid 80s to the mid 90s i don't know what else i'm working what's on. your book if you if to the extent you can share oh i mean i'll share whatever you want yeah my book is uh heartland liberalism in the age of reagan is kind of the working title but it's exploring basically what we talked about today how progressive populists rebuilt these coalitions at the grassroots and really use them to from the bottom up transform midwestern politics uh, how they managed to elect Nash, uh, both local and state and almost uh, national political figures and really attempted to transform the Democratic Party at a time when the, the predominant narrative is the Democratic Leadership Council in the third way and Clinton and the moderates took over the party. Um, it wasn't always to be that way. There was a strong push and there was a moment where it looked like the, the kind of the left wing populists were going to win. Um, but it's a matter of now kind of honing that into a, a nice tight manuscript that, that an academic press will find it profitable enough to publish. So there's the, you right. know, the, the many challenges of publishing these days. Well, you know, the uh, crass commercial interests always prevail over, you know, the true artistry of the historical process. So what kind of Midwestern the best. would I be, though, if I didn't believe that just having the right ideas eventually I'll win, damn it. That's... <laughs> right. Well, if any of our listeners... Uh, have an academic press uh please consider publishing Corey's. uh and, and Corey, how, how can our how can our listeners uh follow your work on twitter or the internet uh, you can follow me at my personal website right now uh, i'm not on twitter yet although i that probably has to change someday soon <laughs> um, my personal website is just my name uh cory Hala, so c-o-r-y-h-a-a-l-a dot org and i blog there from time to time about all things Midwestern politics, history, travel related of uh, my own research. Corey has a lot of fun stuff up there. Some of it very funny. So I definitely recommend checking out his website. It's it's more than just like a dry, you know, oh, this is what I, this is a journal thing I published. There's really funny, interesting blog posts. Uh, so go to Corey's website. Thanks for your time, Corey. Yeah, thanks, Corey. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.